Good morning again, folks. We are meeting together for our next study in the life of Christ. We're getting really close now to Good Friday, and I hope that uh, even though the days are really starting to blend in together, that you are starting to get excited for and cherish and meditate on the real meaning of Easter. Um, a lot of the churches may be closed and empty this weekend but we praise god that the tomb is also empty and so as we build up to that just keep that in mind and keep reflecting on that and the hope that we have in christ is not just a dead hope but a living hope we are in luke 22 now which has about 72 or something verses in it we're not doing them all today don't worry about that relax you can <laughs> just uh, breathe out. Uh, we'll do probably just less than half of them. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll look at um, the Last Supper and Judas's role in, in that. And then tomorrow morning what we'll do is we'll look at uh, the garden and the things that happened there in the garden and um, uh, some of the trials and, and things like that. Uh, so that's how we'll kind of break up the, the chapter. Um Judas Iscariot, as we know, is the guy who betrayed Jesus and handed him over to the guards. And this, in spite of being called to be a disciple, being an apostle to by Christ himself to come and work close quarters with him. This is a guy who heard every word that Jesus taught, saw all the miracles that he performed, saw the unjust way the enemies came after him, saw how the, the, the crowds cheered for him. You know, Judas would later on reflect that he had betrayed innocent blood, which speaks to me of how sinless Christ was. I can't think of anyone who would live with someone for three years plus and not be able to find anything that they could grumble about. Yet Judas said, like, this guy was innocent. Judas probably performed miracles whenever the other guys had been sent out in the early part of their ministry. So what went so badly wrong for him? It's, I mean, it's not as if the other disciples were all perfect. But they managed to get their heads around something that Judas didn't seem to be able to. And I think in that sense, Judas is more like the other religious leaders. They had seen and heard enough to be convinced by who Jesus was, but they only wanted to get rid of him so they could go on with business as usual. The authorities were cards with cravings. They had to find a way to kill him quietly, uh, according to Matthew 26. They had to find a way to murder an innocent man without losing their own esteem and credibility. They needed an insider, someone close enough to Jesus to betray him, but someone who was far enough away from Jesus who would want to betray him. They needed a perp who could pass as a pope. And that insider, that man was Judas Iscariot. Now, the flow of chapter 22 looks like this. The first six verses open with um, the religious elite meeting with Judas to plot Christ's death. With the Last Supper, the garden, and then some of the trials. This is the record of the Thursday of Easter week. It's the day before Christ will be crucified. So let's read verse 3. Then Satan entered into Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve disciples. And he went to the leading priests and captains of the temple guard to discuss the best way to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted and they gave him money. So he agreed and began looking for an opportunity to betray Jesus so they could arrest him when the crowds weren't around. So the Bible is very clear. It was Judas who went to the religious leaders and offered himself up as the inside man. Happy days. They, they found their guy. 
who loved money as much as they did someone who was willing to offend and ostracize himself and his closest friends for a payday. Randy Alcorn writes, Satan works on the assumption that every person has a price. Unfortunately, he's often right. Many people are willing to surrender themselves and their principles to whatever God will bring them the greatest short-term profit. Judas sold out his saviour. And for just 30 pieces of silver, which was not an awful lot, the price of a common slave. And this is Judas's problem, I think you could say. He couldn't get on board with his teachings because his heart belonged to another God. Money. Christ calls on his people to be generous, to give to those who don't deserve. And when people ask for your coat, you give them their shirt as well. We're to be people who go the extra mile, especially for those that don't deserve it. That goes right against the grain of people who love money. If you love money, if you value money and the things that it can buy for you, you can't truly love God. You will hate him. Maybe quietly, maybe privately, maybe hypocritically, but you will hate God. Our God is a God who gives and he calls on his people to be givers. Money is a God that takes and calls on its followers to be takers as well. And that hatred will mark you and follow you everywhere. That kind of divine rejection and betrayal molds a person and becomes something that defines you. The other disciples weren't better people than Judas. Judas came qualified and was trusted enough to look after the purse, a job Christ gave to him, knowing what was going on. But the other disciples, as imperfect as they were, had set their hearts on following Christ as best as they could. Judas followed them on. So it's different to the Apostle Paul. Remember when he speaks from prison in Philippians 4? Remember he's tied up with chains, soldiers shackled him 24-7. And he says in Philippians 4, Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am in to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. What Paul is saying is, look, Jesus is the only thing that has value in my life. When the stock market goes up and I, I get the bonus, well, Jesus is more precious and more satisfying. When the stock market goes down, faces a pay cut or redundancy or furlough, he says, well, I find Jesus more valuable and satisfying than the things that I've lost. I wonder whenever Christ looks at my bank account, my spending, my savings, does he see someone who's like Paul, who's counted everything as lost for the sake of knowing Christ? Or does he see someone who's more like Judas, who ultimately has a price that could convince him to shift his focus? See, the devil assumes that we all have a price that can tempt us away from God being the first priority in our life. Even if it's just down to second place, that's the wrong place for God. And in that moment, we betray Christ just the way Judas did because we reveal that we don't love him with all our heart, all our soul, all our mind, all our strength. Instead, we're sentimental, sympathetic, but when given the choice, our heart will go a different way. But let's move the picture on. Verse 7. Now the festival of unleavened bread arrived when the Passover lamb was sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John ahead and said, go and prepare the Passover meal so we can eat it together. So Peter and John are sent off to prepare the meal. Now that seems like a small job maybe. Why not give that to one of the other 12 who don't do as much as these guys? Why send the big hitters? Why send the leaders of the team? Well, it's the logical choice. They're part of the inner circle. You often read about Peter, James and John. Peter and John, they were there when the woman 
said Jesus was raised from the dead. It was they who ran to the tomb to see it. Jesus knows that there's a plot afoot. He knows that Judas is looking for the first possibility to take advantage and betray him. Jesus is on a schedule. And so Peter and John, he assigns them this job. Go up to the temple, watch the lamb get slaughtered, then take the lamb back, start to roast it, start to get it ready for the meal, get the table prepared, get the unleavened bread, the bitter herbs, the wine. Because there'll be four glasses of wine for each disciple, for each one around that table for the Passover. So it takes time. It takes energy. It, it takes methodical thinking. And so that was their job. But it's important work. It's an important job. Christ wanted his big hitters on this to tell us that this was an important job. You see, this is how Jesus is going to tell us to remember him. So by putting Peter and John on the case, it highlights, okay, church down the line, down through history, this act of remembering me is not to be delegated out. It's an honour. It's a privilege to be doing this. So the leaders of your group, the Peters and Johns of your church, should be leading this act of remembrance. I've always been intrigued that the Lord Jesus, in order to be remembered, didn't say, look, you know, build me a temple, build me a statue, make sure my face is plastered right there, write lots of books. He said, here's how I want you to remember me. A meal. I want you to eat together. Eating is a sacred thing for, for the Jewish people. It's more than just clearing a plate and just moving on. It's a shared experience with other people. And so if I eat with you, then you and I are becoming one with each other because the same food that is building me up is, is the food that's building you up. And so we're becoming part of one another. So Jesus says, look, I'm going to want you to remember me with this meal. Now look, with like all the gospel writers, they, they give different insights and it can be quite stressful trying to harmonise it all together. John takes five chapters to piece it all together and there's bits that he doesn't even include. So it's very difficult. But Luke doesn't mention the washing of the feet or the seating arrangements. But what we do know from the other writers is that Jesus washed Judas's feet. Here's what strikes me. We read that Satan entered into Judas in verse 3. Yet Judas then is present for washing his feet. Now, this is humbling and it's encouraging. Yeah, it, it's encouraging because even though Jesus knew Judas was going to betray him, he knew that the real enemy was there. Jesus still served him. Jesus knew everything. And yet he wasn't afraid of the enemy. He wasn't afraid to love the one who had already set the wheels in motion of betrayal. I don't know about you, but I find it hard sometimes serving my closest loved ones without keeping score it's like oh, hold on hold on it's why is it always me it's someone else's turn now it's difficult to always humble yourself to serve to put other people's needs in front of your own continually without reward without recognition but i can't fathom putting a backstabber's needs in front of my own freely now imagine you do that to someone who is about to do something that they'll betray you and lead you to death would you still serve them that's a different way of measuring God's love for a sinner, isn't it? Because at the same time, that's what I am, it's what you are. The sinner, the betrayer, the one who put Jesus on the cross. It's my sin that put him there. How many times have I turned from God's grace to live, act, be, do what I want to do for my own selfishness? And yet Jesus served me still by going to the cross. It's humbling because of my sin, but it's encouraging because I'm reminded by how much God loves me, even though he knows me. He still went to the cross willingly for me. 
And yet consider this, Jesus arranged all this with the religious leaders and then went to Passover with them. Now, common knowledge, yes, Judas was there, but think about it, how cold-hearted must that have been? Imagine you invite me over to your house for Christmas dinner, okay? A, a special meal, it's for close family, close friends, Christmas dinner, Christmas day. And so what I do though beforehand is I arrange with hitmen to come and to kidnap you, to torture you, to beat you, and ultimately to kill you. And yeah, I still show up to Christmas dinner. And then when the topic of betrayal comes up, I have the audacity to say, who, me? No, surely not. Just get a sense of just how shameless and defiant and audacious this is from Judas. You can't just tell, oh look, they're up in that upper room, soldiers, you go get them. I'm not going back in there. But he acted like everything was normal. It's so incredible, but Jesus still loved him. He washed his feet. Jesus was in control of everything that was happening. He trusted his father's plan and was therefore free to love Judas. Such was his love. Such was his patience with Judas right to the very end. I have to wonder if Judas noticed this. He'd been sitting at Jesus' left-hand side, traditionally a, a position of honour. John sat on the right-hand side, which meant he was able to rest his head on Jesus' shoulder. Jesus at the head of the table. He hands Judas the piece of bread dipped in herbs again as a gesture of honour for the host to do that. To do this at a Passover meal of all meals. For Jesus, this was another opportunity to show Judas that he was loved, that he was dearly loved, highly valued, regardless of his actions, regardless of all, because let's be honest, folks, Christ has a habit of loving people who let him down, doesn't he? Uh, yeah. I know this for a fact. Yet Judas takes it as an act of treachery, echoing the words of Psalm 41 that says, Even my close friend in whom I trusted who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. Okay, now jump ahead a wee bit there. So let's just see that happen now and look. Let's read from verse 17. He took the cup of wine and gave thanks to God for it. Then he said, Take this and share it among yourselves, for I will not drink wine again until the kingdom of God has come. Okay, now in the Passover meal, it revolved around four glasses of wine. By the time Christ was uh, was come, there was an order of how it should be done. The Hebrew word is cedar. So you've heard maybe of the cedar feast, which is also called the Haggadah, which is the telling of the story. I think it's a brilliant name for a meal, the telling of the story. And so the first glass of wine was the Kedush, the blessing. That's what we read in verse 17, where the host would bless God and give a blessing to those who have joined him around his table for Passover. The second cup was the cup of judgment and the host, Jesus, in this particular case, would retell the story of Passover and the judgment that fell upon the Pharaoh and the Egyptians. And then they would break or, or sorry, the host would break the bread, would dip it in bitter herbs, which speaks of the bitterness of bondage of chains in, in Egypt. Now, let's read verse 19 of Luke. He took some bread and gave thanks to God for it. OK, so normal procedure in the cedar. And then he breaks from the script. Then he broke it in pieces and gave it to the disciples, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So he said, OK, my body, my sacrifice is what will break the bondage of your souls. I'll break the chains of sin in the same way the chains in Egypt were broken. Verse 20. Then after supper, he took another cup of wine. So this is the third cup then in the meal that Jesus is using. And he says, this cup is the new covenant between God and his people. An agreement confirmed with my blood, which is poured out as a sacrifice to you. The third cup, 
of the meal that Jesus is using. That's the cup of redemption. And it's the one referred to in 1 Corinthians 10, 16 that speaks of a cup of blessing that we now bless. This is what Jeremiah was anticipating in Jeremiah 31. When he said, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel. Not like the former covenant that had their forefathers enjoyed and had to keep. I'm going to write my law in their hearts. The new covenant. This night is the end of the old covenant and it is the beginning of the new covenant. Now only God inaugurated the old covenant and only God can annul it and start a new one. And he's doing it at this meal that we are reading about. Now, as a side note, the fourth cup in the cedar is traditionally used as a cup of praise. But now in this new covenant, that will be reserved for the millennial reign of Christ. Until then, we look forward to it by sipping from the cup of redemption. Verse 21. But here at this table sitting among us as a, as a friend is the man who will betray me. For it has been determined that the son of man must die. But what sorrow awaits the one who betrays him? The disciples began to ask each other which one of them would do such a thing. Judas is here at the moment communion was instituted, right? That's verse 21 clearly says. Judas isn't identified at this point because the other disciples clearly don't have an, any idea who it is. Now, only John's gospel mentions specifically Judas leaving, but he doesn't mention the bread and the wine. So it's very hard to place exactly and harmonize these four things to get the four gospels together. But it would seem that this verse seems to justify Judas was there. Here at this table, sitting among us as a friend, is the man who will betray me. And that comes just after the institution of communion. So here's a question for you. This kind of just bounces us around a wee bit. Jesus knew in advance that G Judas would betray him, right? Well, before Jesus picked his disciples, his apostles and clinches, he spent a night in prayer with the Father. And then he picked Judas back in Luke 6. Why? Why, why bring him into the group at all? If Jesus is all-knowing, omniscient, and the New Testament have ample examples of that's true, why pick Judas to begin with at all? Well, the obvious answer is to fulfill scripture, to fulfill prophecy. Psalm 41, for starters, that we quoted, or Zechariah 13, which is another one that predicted that uh, Jesus, the Messiah, would be betrayed by a close friend for 30 pieces of silver. So one reason is to show God is in control. He keeps his word. He's fulfilling scripture. But here's the second thing, and okay, maybe it's not so much a reason, but it's worth repeating for some of you who are listening. Love. To be true love, it has to be vulnerable. Jesus knew he would be betrayed. Jesus knew that his love for Judas would not change Judas, and yet he picked him anyway. Now, I'm bringing this up because every now and again when I talk to people who've had strained relationships or there's maybe been a breakup of some sort, uh, it could be a marriage, it could be dating or friendships or work, whatever it happens to be, you watch people develop coping mechanisms to try and uh, guarantee that they don't get hurt in the future. And so they kind of come out with this idea of, okay, how do I get to a place where I'll never be hurt again? Well, you kind of have to just go to the moon for that you know, by yourself. Look, love is going to hurt. Love gets its heart broken. It's part of the vulnerability. But what astounds me is that Jesus knew in advance and still picked Judas. He showed him his own love, put his heart out on the line for this guy, knowing it was all in vain. That's true love. It's why in a marriage ceremony, the questions asked, it's not a formality, really. It's a good statement. I take you as my lawfully wedded wife or wedded husband for better or for worse. 
it's not for better or for even better than better or for richer and for even more riches. It's that I, I promise to be with you and love you through the good and the bad, through the nice and the ugly. It's a promise. It's a covenant. I'm treating you the same regardless. I promise to be consistent in my devotion to you. And that is how Jesus loves everyone. Anybody can love the ideal person. It's loving the real person. That's the challenge. That's the real commitment. And Judas with Jesus is a great example of this. Jesus still loved Judas. Jesus wanted Judas to know this because Judas didn't have to betray Jesus. He could have changed path. He could have backed out of the deal. He could have changed direction at any time that he wanted. The fact that Jesus knew what was happening didn't seal Judas's fate. God's foreknowledge doesn't overrule human responsibility or human accountability. Judas chose to betray Jesus. He chose to follow through. He'll be judged by God according to his actions because ultimately we're all accountable for what we do with Jesus, right? Either we enthrone him or we dethrone him. We either say yes or we say no to Jesus. You can't sit on the fence. And then for some inexplicable reason the disciples start talking about who the best of them is who's the greatest now maybe it stems from the conversation about who would betray Jesus oh no way I would never do that sure I'm one of the best disciples oh uh, well maybe it's Levi he worked with the Romans maybe he still is he he's the worst one and then maybe it seems like Peter's winning this argument and then Jesus speaks up again verse 31 Simon Simon now, I don't think I'd really like to be Peter at this dinner table because Jesus is about to tell him something and it seems to be in the public context. He uses his old name. All right, you know, he used to be called Simon and then he got changed to Peter. You know that sinking feeling, men, whenever your wife uses your full name, you go, oh no. Simon was Peter's original name before Jesus renamed him. And so why would Jesus call him by his old name? Because he's going to revert to his old character, his old behavior. He's going to lean and trust on the old self. Simon. Satan has asked to sift each of you like wheat. You see, the you in, in that Bible there is the Greek, it's plural. So he's addressing Simon as the head of the disciples group. You're Okay, you're the greatest, you're the spokesman then. Well, listen, Simon, Mr. Ringleader, Satan wants to get all of you. He wants to sift you like wheat. Now, that would be unsettling to hear, right? I get really nervous and say, you know, uh, Jeff, you know, Satan keeps asking for you. I'll be like, okay, Jesus, well, what have you been telling him? What exactly have you said to him? By the way, that's the kind of relationship that you want with the devil. When Satan knocks at your door, you let Jesus answer. You let Jesus speak to him for you. Don't you try to go and talk to him. I, I get worried when you hear Christians say, devil, I bind you. Devil, I rebuke you. Go, what are you doing talking to the devil? Don't go near him. Let Jesus do that. Don't spend your time praying to the devil. Don't talk to the devil about God. Go and talk to God about the devil. Let Jesus handle it. He's the snake handler. Let him deal with the serpent. Verse 32, but I have pleaded in prayer for you, Simon, that your faith should not fail. So when you have repented and turned to me again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said, Lord, I'm ready to go to prison with you and even to die with you. But Jesus said, Peter, let me tell you something. Before the rooster crows tomorrow morning, you'll deny three times that you even know me. Now, reading this, some people go, well, see, his faith did fail. Satan got him. He denied the Lord. I said, no, 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 no. You've got it all wrong. His courage failed? Yes. 
but his faith didn't fail. And we know this because of his sorrow at hearing the cock crow. And we know by his restoration to Jesus in John 21. Jesus predicted Peter's denial and fall, but please note that Jesus also predicted Peter's restoration. Read verse 32 again. I have pleaded in prayer for you, Simon, that your faith should not fail. So when you have repented and turned to me again, strengthen your brothers. So there's a promise of repentance and there's a commission. This is the turning point for the man. This, his worst failure, becomes the threshold of a whole new ministry. We ought to learn from this. Allow your failures to become your instructor, not your undertaker. You have no right to say, oh man, that's me. I blew it. I am a goner. I'm just not going to go to church anymore. I'm not going to get involved. I'm not going to hang around and serve the Lord anymore. That's no, don't do that. You learn from your mistake and you move on. You don't let it bury you. You, you can get a do-over with Christ and you'll be better for it because you'll be strengthened because of it and you'll be an encouragement to others who have struggled and failed in the same area as you. By the way, I've yet to meet a Christian who doesn't struggle and fail somewhere. People say, oh, Jeff, I'm such a failure. Well, I give them a hug and go, you're in the right place. Welcome. You're one of us now. Our church is somewhere where the failures get to hang out together. Study the word. Get restored for future ministry. There's no perfect people in our evangelical church. Just sinners saved by grace. Learning a little bit more every day. Being moulded a little bit more every day. And we try and do that together. Some days are better than others. Sometimes we go back a couple of steps. Other times we get a sense of what could be. If only we could be consistent in it. Now look, tomorrow we'll take time and we'll really get through the Garden of Gethsemane setting. But let me just conclude with something that we've been reading. Is it fair to blame Judas for his betrayal? Well, remember, never forget, divine sovereignty never negates or destroys human responsibility or accountability. Never. The fact that God knows what you're going to do before you do it doesn't alleviate your responsibility for making the right choices. God has foreknowledge and God is sovereign. He knows all things. But Judas was given a choice and he made that choice. So he is totally and utterly responsible for the consequences of his choice well at the same time he demonstrates the sovereignty of god in writing about in advance zechariah 13 psalm 41 and others predicting what would happen that should boost our faith because nothing takes god off guard even this betrayal even this moment jesus is in control of it all can you rest in that knowing that your life is under the same control how can we read scripture like this and not walk away going okay that's okay He's in absolute and total control of my life. And so as the writer of Hebrews says, strengthen the hands that fall down and the feeble knees stand up straight. Be strong in the Lord. Why? Because God loves you. He loves you the way he loved Judas and the way he loved Peter. Standing, reaching out for the chance to go again. So be strong in the strength that God supplies. Remembering what he has done for you at the cross. Let's pray. Father, we face, whatever we face, we know you're good for that. Wherever we go, you'll meet us there. If you've gone before us, you'll lead us through. Lord David said, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we don't like the valleys, but it's a valley that we have to go through. But the promise is your presence in those valleys. You're with us. You lead us, you love us, 
and even no matter what that valley brings at the other side of that valley is our father's house and so father i pray that you'd strengthen those watching here that need the extra special touch from you right now show them lord that you're in total control even of this virus lord that you can override and even redeem the bad choices that we have made lord that you are that much in control that we can rest and we do rest in jesus name Amen.